So Dr. White went to medical school and earned its PhD in immunology at the University of Iowa. After residency training at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, he completed his fellowship and postdoctoral research at Washington University in St. Louis. He currently sees patients in the Department of Rheumatology at Gunderson Lutheran in La Crosse, Wisconsin. He's going to discuss the interpretation of common laboratory studies in patients with autoimmune disease, um, but he's going to expand on that tonight or this afternoon. Please welcome uh, Dr. White. So um, everybody get lunch. How many, how many people feel the coma coming on? This is the time of day in the meeting where you don't want to have a talk. There's a lot of nodding heads usually. Uh, I understand. I'll, I'll, uh, I don't think I'll need an hour to go through this. So maybe we'll get a walk out of it uh, since we're ahead of schedule. Um, I want to talk about autoantibody testing. I find that there's a lot of confusion about autoantibody testing in rheumatologic disease. And I think that's for good reason. Um, for one thing, it's complicated. And the other problem is that it keeps changing and it's hard to stay on top of. So what I want to do today is go over uh, some of the tests that you are already familiar with and talk about how they might have changed and review how to interpret them and when to use it, uh, when to use them. And also branch into some of the new tests and talk about uh, what you might want to know about those. Uh, we touched a little bit on this earlier this morning and so a little bit of it will be review uh, with a bit more detail. Um, when I was getting these comments ready and as I've been thinking about this over the last few years, uh, another reason that I think there's so much confusion is um, because most of the time when we talk about these things, we don't talk about them all together, we don't talk about them at one time, and it doesn't allow the audience to see the common themes. So another thing that I want to do today, hopefully, is show you a theme uh, that explains how these autoantibody tests have changed over the years. And I think if you follow me on the, on the theme and how they're changing over time, it'll make it a lot easier to remember it and a lot easier to predict and to understand what you're going to see in the future in terms of new autoantibody tests. Okay, we'll stick with the same three diseases that we were talking about this morning. Rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus erythematosus, and vasculitis, especially as it pertains to the patients with a positive ANCA. Let's start off with rheumatoid arthritis, and the two tests of interest are the rheumatoid factor. This is the one that we're familiar with. It's been around for a long time. The new kid on the block is the anti-CCP test. Uh, this stands for cyclic citrullinated peptide and we'll talk about that in some detail. Okay, rheumatoid factors. These are antibodies that recognize other antibodies. They come in multiple flavors. The common ones that are tested today, although you might not even see this when you order the rheumatoid factor, you might not specifically know which one you're ordering, but you're typically ordering an IgM rheumatoid factor and or an IgG rheumatoid factor. So here's an IgM antibody, and it is binding other immunoglobulins. Here's an IgG antibody, and it is binding other immunoglobulins. Those are both rheumatoid factors, and they're both present. 
in approximately 80% of patients who have rheumatoid arthritis. The higher, the tighter, the more likely the patient's disease is going to be aggressive, erosive, associated with extraarticular manifestations, et cetera. Now, the problem from the rheumatologist's perspective for the rheumatoid factor is its lack of specificity. This has plagued us for years because you have a patient who has a little bit of joint pain and they have a rheumatoid factor and you're thinking, well, geez, do I have to pull out the methotrexate? Uh, do I have to get aggressive with this arthritis? Or is this something that's probably not going to go on to turn into uh, a deforming arthritis? And the differential, I think the most important uh, items that you want to rule out when you see somebody with a positive rheumatoid factor, especially if you don't really think they have rheumatoid arthritis, are hep C, uh, Sjogren's, chronic infection, especially MTB, sarcoidosis, and as we mentioned before, it even occurs in a subset of healthy patients. It turns out, however, that patients with rheumatoid arthritis excuse me, well, patients with all kinds of autoimmune disease, but especially rheumatoid arthritis, have multiple autoantibodies in their blood. And patients with rheumatoid arthritis have more in their blood than just rheumatoid factors. And we've known about this for a long time. These studies go back all the way to the 70s, where you had scientists sitting around in a lab, I'm not making this up, taking samples of sera from patients with rheumatoid arthritis and experimenting on different tissues, looking for staining patterns, trying to find patterns that correlated with various disease states. This is one of my favorite. This is a rat esophagus. And as you can see, it lights up like crazy in patients who have rheumatoid arthritis, but not other diseases. And this was very specific. This, the only time they ever saw this pattern was in patients with RA. Other investigators saw the similar pattern, or sorry, saw also very specific staining uh, with um, a, a different substrate. And when they tried to figure out exactly what those antibodies in this tissue, in the case of rat esophagus here, what were those antibodies seeing, they figured out that it was flagrin, a protein called flagrin, and keratin over here. That wasn't very helpful because we couldn't turn those substrates into a test that you could use commercially or apply widely to patients with rheumatoid arthritis and joint disease. It took the discovery that all of these antibodies were recognizing the same epitope before the uh, test could be commercialized and turned into something that was easy to distribute and easy to use on a widespread basis. And the chemistry behind that, I show you not so that you have to memorize this or anything like that, but just out for your curiosity. The chemistry behind it and what's being recognized is a particular amino acid called citrulline, which is created when an enzyme called peptidyl arginine deaminase, excuse me, deaminase, converts an arginine residue into a citrulline residue. So this is a post-translational modification that importantly converts a charged residue of an amino acid and it's sitting in a protein into a neutral uh, residue. And this was the epitope that was being recognized by those autoantibodies in all those patients with rheumatoid arthritis and that was lighting up all this rat esophagus tissue that they kept testing. It turns out, looking back, that all of these antibodies, which were associated with rheumatoid arthritis, 
perinuclear factor, keratin antibodies, filaggrin antibodies, they were all being recognized because of this citrullination, this post-translational modification event. Well, it's been very difficult to isolate any of these proteins in such a way that they maintain that neutral charge and they become a good substrate for clinical testing. So somebody came up with a very clever idea, and they simply took a large number of proteins, exposed them to PAD, that enzyme we were talking about before, converted a lot of the amino acids to citrulline, and then put those proteins on the bottom of an ELISA plate. And that is the substrate called CCP, which is what we use for the anti-CCP antibody test. So CCP doesn't exist in the body. It's an artificial substrate which generates that new epitope, that neutral amino acid, which then is used to detect the presence of these antibodies, which have been known for decades. It turns out that um, depending on the test you use, which generation you use, um, above 50%, sometimes as high as 70 or 80% of patients who have rheumatoid arthritis will have anti-CCP antibodies. And as I mentioned earlier this morning, the real advantage of this test is that there are essentially no false positives, especially at the high titers. All these tests are a little susceptible to problems at low titers for false positivity, but at high titers, once you have a positive CCP, you're done. This patient has rheumatoid arthritis, and that's an extremely convenient test to have. All right, this takes me to this theme I'm gonna to try to uh, paint for the rest of the talk. And um, I hope you see the parallel between the changes over time in testing for uh, rheumatoid arthritis that we'll talk about in lupus and ANCA-associated vasculitis. So it all starts with the patient, of course, and we draw some blood out of the patient, and we isolate the serum, and we ask whether or not antibodies from that patient's blood will recognize a substrate. In this case, I'm showing you just a random cell. Let's say it's a cell, let's say it's a neutrophil for an ANCA-associated, for an ANCA test. It doesn't matter. There's some substrate on a plate or on a slide that we're gonna look at under the microscope, and we're simply asking, does the patient have any antibodies in their serum that bind to this cell? We then follow up with another antibody this antibody recognizes human antibodies, but this antibody has a tag on it, and so it makes this whole complex visible under the microscope. And we don't necessarily have to limit ourselves to looking at cells. We can look at tissues from rodents. This was very common. Most of the ANA testing that's been done up until this HEP2 assay was actually rodent livers, rat livers and mouse livers. So a large number of substrates were used, but basically we're always asking the question, is there anything out of the patient that binds in a particular pattern to these tissues? And if so, then we uh, recognize it with another antibody that's marked. And we put it under the microscope and we look for a particular pattern of staining like you saw in the rat esophagus um, with the uh, RA patients. Now, we don't know which antibodies from the patients are binding here, and we don't know exactly what they're binding. We just know it's a particular pattern. But this is hard to apply in a clinical setting. Right? It was very difficult to get the rat esophagus cut the right way and processed the right way, and you couldn't spread that from lab to lab and make it a very clinically useful test until you figured out what those antibodies were actually binding. And when you figured out that they were binding citrulline peptides, 
citrullinated peptides, excuse me, these neutral epitopes. Then you just take a bunch of neutral epitopes and you put them on the bottom of a plate, a plastic plate. You take the serum from the patient, you bind the antibody, you come in with a secondary antibody, and now you stick it in a plate reader and you have an assay that looks like this. Why is this important? Because it's automatable, it's much less expensive, anybody can do it, and you can sell it and put it all over the country so that everybody can participate and do it. The other thing you can do is you can get a titer with a test like this because you can ask how many dilutions it still works. And so it becomes a much more, in some senses, much more reliable test. So this is the trend that's been happening in all sorts of autoantibody testing in rheumatologic disease, and this has been going on for decades. We start off with an ill-defined antigen. There's something in the rat esophagus that's being recognized by serum of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And you go to a well-defined antigen over many years. Oh, it's a citrulline residue on a peptide. You go from a very low specificity test. In other words, well, there's all kinds of antibodies that bind rat esophagus in patients with different disease, but only those with true rheumatoid arthritis will bind anti-CCP antibodies. You go from a heterogeneous group of diseases to very tight disease definitions and associations. You take a test that can only be done in a specialty lab, and now you make a commercial product out of it where multiple labs can do it. And you go from staining rat esophagus to something called the anti-CCP test. So I'll show you, or what I'm gonna to try to show you, is that the same thing applies to the ANA test, right? What is the Smith antibody? Well, it's nothing more than a more specific version of an ANA. And what is a proteinase 3? Well, it's nothing more than a more specific version of an ANCA. This is the old, this is the new. Okay, one more quick uh, review about the anti-CCP antibodies. Both the anti-CCP antibodies and the rheumatoid factors are present for years before patients, uh, before many patients have any symptoms. And don't forget to use these two tests to screen patients who have inflammatory sounding joint pain. And again, this is a confluence of interesting factors that makes a screening test very important. Rheumatoid arthritis is prevalent. These antibodies are highly specific. And as we talked about this morning, early therapy alters the course of the disease. So these are the ones that we want to identify as quickly as we can. All right, so again, how do you check? We talked about it this morning. You'd get your rheumatoid factor, your CCP, your ESR, and your CRP. Well, they all come back negative. Call me anyway. Why? It's great that you're doing the test. I want you to do the test. But if you think you've got somebody with inflammatory joint pain and all these tests come back negative, I want you to call me anyway. Why? This is why. Ted Pincus' group had a beautiful study. And I think I'll just pause and let you read it because the message is really in the title. This is a humongous study. We've got lots of patients on two continents. And even with the rheumatoid factors and the CCPs and the ESR and the CRP, we're going to miss a substantial portion of the patients early on when they're developing rheumatoid arthritis. So uh, again, the positive values are very helpful. The negative values, we still have to do some investigating. Okay, let's switch gears and go to uh, lupus. The antibodies we're interested in in uh, testing for lupus are anti-nuclear antibodies, ANA. There's a panel called the Extractable Nuclear Antigen Panel. Most of you will recognize that as an ENA. Some labs will have these separated out or some labs will have them uh, grouped a little bit differently and may be called by a different name. 
And then there's anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies, which I abbreviate DNA. This is what they look like under the microscope. You can imagine why these things are hard to interpret. You'll notice many of you, when you order an ANA, will get back a result telling you that the ANA came back in a particular pattern, and this slide is trying to illustrate those patterns. And you can imagine how difficult it is for the techs in the lab to distinguish between these patterns, uh, especially when it's not as perfect as it is in the slide that I show you here, because it's not usually even this clear. And I think this is pretty difficult to read. Okay, a lot of misunderstandings about ANAs. Misunderstanding number one, 20% of lupus patients have a negative ANA. That used to be true. That's because we were testing ANAs by looking at antibody binding to rodent livers. We've switched over to this new HEP2 cell, which is a human cell line. And this detects virtually all patients with lupus. Uh, some studies put the number at about 98, 99%. Other people will claim that those 1% to 2% of patients don't even have lupus and say that there's no such thing whatsoever as ANA-negative lupus. Misunderstanding number, uh, so this leads me again to caveat number two. Please go home and ask your laboratory or find out where you send your ANA, whether or not they're using a HEP2 cell-based assay, because if they're not, uh, uh, we're wasting time and resources by doing the wrong test first, which is going to have to be followed up with the proper test. Misunderstanding number two, the pattern of ANA staining, coral, staining correlates with different disease states. Now, in a very um, technical sense, this is still true. When ANA tests were done in a small number of reference laboratories with a small number of technicians who sat around and did ANA testing all day every day and had been doing it for decades and really knew what they were doing and had the conditions worked out perfectly, there were clear correlations between particular patterns on the ANA and different disease states. Those correlations were never spectacular, but they were real. Now ANA testing is commercialized. It's done all over the country in all kinds of different labs. And the interpretation of those staining patterns depends heavily on the kit and the kind of condition that the kit is in, who sold you the kit, and the expertise and the experience of the person doing the reading. Um, and so by virtue of those changes over time, these correlations between the patterns of an ANA and particular disease states have all but gone away. This is very concerning for some patients. This is problematic for some patients because they get an ANA test and then they go online and they look up their result on your electronic medical record. And there's a little comment after the ANA of one to 80 and it says this pattern may be associated with scleroderma and they Google scleroderma, and then the wheels fall off, and they have a panic attack for three weeks before they can get in to see somebody and say, wait, 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 hold on. It's okay, don't worry. So um, I think there's probably more harm in the reporting of these patterns in modern day than there is good in the reporting of the patterns, and I encourage you to help your patients take this with a grain of salt until we get to the bottom of their disease. Uh, misunderstanding number three, a positive ANA means lupus. I don't really think there are many providers out there still telling patients this. I don't think that happens very often. I'm sure it's happened in the past. 
what I think happens is the patients hear that a positive ANA means lupus because somewhere along the line, somebody refers to it as the lupus test. And so there are a large number of patients, again, who are uh, given a positive ANA result and asked to go see a rheumatologist. And while they're waiting their four months to get into the rheumatology office, um, they sit at home thinking that they have lupus. Uh, couldn't be uh, any further from the truth. The differential diagnosis for uh, a positive ANA, as we talked about earlier this morning, is quite broad. And uh, most of these patients don't have autoimmune disease, and they certainly don't have lupus. Okay, so back to this scheme, uh, back to this same pattern that we're seeing of changes in autoantibody testing over time. We take serum out of a patient, we put it onto a substrate, either a HEP2 cell or a, a mouse liver or a, or a rat liver or some other kind of tissue, and we look for the patient's antibody to bind, and we detect that with another antibody, and we stick it under the microscope, and we look at the pattern, and we say, voila, you have a positive ANA, and we try and derive clinical conclusions from that. Well, in lupus, just like in rheumatoid arthritis, much has been learned about the specific antibodies, excuse me, the specific antigens, the specific proteins which are being bound by these antibodies in these tests. And two of them I want to highlight are one known as the Smith antigen. This is a family of proteins, and antibodies against this protein are very specific for lupus. And another is double-stranded DNA, and again, this is a highly specific test for lupus. So when you can take Smith proteins and put them on the bottom of an ELISA plate or double-stranded DNA and put it on the bottom of an ELISA plate, you've now converted a difficult-to-perform test into a, uh, a test that you can run in a plate reader in an automated fashion and uh, probably get more reliable data. Again, we go from this ill-defined antigen to a well-defined antigen. Uh, difficult to define diseases to, to, to tight disease associations. We used to only be able to do this in specialty labs, and now we're seeing these commercial products all over the country. And this is a, example number two of defining the Smith antigen as one of those components that makes an ANA light up positive. So both Smith and anti-double-stranded DNAs are very specific for lupus. Um, again, the Smith antigen is usually ordered on your uh, lab order sheet as part of an ENA panel. Anti-double-stranded DNAs are usually added or ordered separately. There's sometimes some confusion about ANA versus anti-double-stranded DNA testing. So this is a table that tries to compare and contrast those two tests for your future reference. Uh, but basically, modern testing for an ANA uses these HEP2 cells. And anti-double-stranded DNA testing, you have three choices. Almost every lab will default when you just order an anti-double-stranded DNA test to something called the ELISA version of this test. This test is a little susceptible to low titer false positives. Uh, there's a good reason for this. If you think about trying to put double-stranded DNA on a plastic plate, it commonly becomes unwound on that plate. Well, now your substrate for the detection of antibodies that bind that plate includes single-stranded DNA. Well, single-stranded DNA antibodies are very, very common and not clinically, clinically meaningful. Right, so when you have a small amount of single-stranded DNA on the bottom of the plate, you pick up those antibodies as well. So to bypass that problem associated with the ELISA testing, 
for the double-stranded DNA, there's a couple of alternative tests you can get. One's called a cathidia, and the other one's called a FAR assay. And these two are uh, technically modified such that the DNA stays in its double-stranded state, and you eliminate the detection of those antibodies against single-stranded DNA. The specificity for the ANA in the setting of lupus is low, but the anti-double-stranded DNA test is very high, but the sensitivity is just the opposite. Everybody with lupus has a positive ANA, but only a subset of patients with lupus will have positive DNA. Uh, is the titer important in interpretation of these tests? Yes, in both cases. The high titer ANAs are much harder to turn away from than the low titer ANAs. And the anti-double-stranded DNA will actually sometimes come and go uh, as the patient's disease flares, and we use this to monitor disease activity. Very few autoantibodies that you can do that with, but the anti-double-stranded DNA is one of them. Okay, last group, back to the ANCA-associated vasculitides. Similar story. We're gonna talk about ANCAs, PR3s, and myeloperoxidase antibodies. And here again, I hope you're seeing the patterns, is what it looks like when we stain for an ANCA. Now instead of using a HEP2 cell, we have a neutrophil on a slide. We take some uh, serum out of the patient, and when it binds to these cells, we say, hey, look, the patient's antibodies are binding to these neutrophils. We call that an ANCA. And when it's in this uh, perinuclear distribution, we call it a P-ANCA. And when it's cytoplasmic, we call it C-ANCA. Well, it turns out that most of the time when you get this P-ANCA pattern, it's because the antibodies are recognizing myeloperoxidase, and most of the time when you get the C-ANCA pattern, it's because they're recognizing proteinase 3. So again, the same story. Here's what it looks like. We've taken the antibodies out of the patient. We're looking at the binding to the cell, and we get this kind of staining pattern. And now we've been able to replace this test with one where we specifically use proteinase 3 on the bottom of a plate or myeloproxidase on the bottom of a plate. And again, we go from ill-defined antigens and low specificity to high specificity such that uh, rheumatologists now will treat Wegener's granulomatosis without a pathologic sample. That's very uncommon. When I trained, that wasn't the case. We would never give somebody cyclophosphamide for Wegener's unless we had Wegener's proven on a biopsy, on a pathologic sample from one of their organs that's involved. Now, in the proper clinical setting, when you have an anti-PR3 antibody, you're done. This patient has Wegener's granulomatosis, and it's time to quit messing around and get them on some therapy before it's too late. Okay, so the clinical syndromes that we're paying attention to now in a more modern uh, understanding of it are this disease we used to call Wegener's. They've changed the name now to make it more confusing and harder to memorize, but it's granulomatosis with polyangiitis. Um, I still, for simplicity's sake, uh, refer, it usually, uh, refer to it usually as Wegener's disease. And then the other ANCA-associated vasculitis usually is microscopic polyangiitis. The old testing, as you're aware, is the unreliable C-ANCA and P-ANCA. Now we've got this new testing for proteinase 3 and myeloproxidase antibodies. And here's the exciting part. This is brand new data out of New England Journal, one of these huge genome-wide association screens found out that there are three genes that are highly associated with Wegener's disease and one gene which is highly associated with microscopic polyangiitis. Now here's the important part. The associations were tighter 
between the antibody state than they were between the clinician's diagnosis. So we're slowly moving from these clinical criteria, which we've relied on for years to define patients as having a particular disease, and which are unreliable, and getting better and better testing so that we can figure out these diseases without having to rely on these clinical disease, uh, excuse me, these clinical disease scores and these clinical definitions. So in other words, if the definition of uh, if the patient met criteria, ACR criteria for Wegener's granulomatosis, they were put in this category. But the genetics actually more tightly fit with their antibody staining, not with their ACR criteria for what kind of disease they had. So we're getting closer and closer to the truth and closer and closer to the pathogenesis and farther and farther away from these clinical definitions of these diseases. Okay, so all patients with inflammatory joint pain need a rheumatoid factor and a CCP, plus an ESR and a CRP in my mind. A negative ANA, if it's done properly, almost always rules out lupus. And don't forget about that new treatment, rituximab, for patients with ANCA-associated vasculitis. It's changing a lot of patients' lives. And with that, I'll stop and maybe get you out of here before your head hits the table. Go ahead, we got a question, yeah. Right. Okay, so the question is, uh, what's the deal with uh, the development of an ANA in patients that are being treated with usually anti-TNF agents? Those are the biologics you're referring to, right? And she's absolutely right. So there's a pretty common clinical scenario where a patient with rheumatoid arthritis or one of these other diseases like psoriatic arthritis gets treated with an anti-TNF agent, and then they go on to develop what we call a lupus-like reaction. The spectrum of disease in the lupus-like reaction to the TNF agents is broad, but it's mostly quite minor. A large portion of these patients will only develop an anti, uh, excuse me, an ANA. Some of them will get an anti-double-stranded DNA. A lot of them will have an antihistone antibody because it's a drug lupus-like reaction. And they won't even have any clinical manifestations. We watch it and or largely ignore it. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the patients with that same syndrome who get some symptoms associated with it, and it's rarely clinically threatening. Every once in a while, about the severest they'll get is a little bit of serositis, but it usually doesn't inhibit the, the ability to use the drug. A lot of times you can treat through it if you think that the anti-TNF agent is more important than the lupus-like syndrome that they're having, and we don't follow it. Uh, we, we usually don't do much except watch them clinically. For instance, one of the important things is these patients almost never go on to get the kidney disease associated with true lupus. Uh, endogenous lupus. And so it's very reassuring that most of the patients with the lupus-like syndrome won't have any symptoms at all, and even when they do, it's usually not very progressive. Usually you can treat through it. I'm sorry, I can't quite hear you. if they're being treated with uh, anti-TNF agents? Oh, that's a great one. Uh, okay, so the question is, you have a patient who's on an anti-TNF agent and they develop a positive ANA. Do you just watch them or do you send them off to a rheumatologist? I think with all of these things, it's like the workup question we had this morning. How far do you go in the workup? 
Um, and I think it really depends on your level of comfort with the syndrome, right? When we're early on and just developing an understanding of these processes or they're just newly understood or we're newly out of school and in practice, I think you tend to be more aggressive. When you've seen it a few times, you tend to be able to lay back a little bit and say, I think I'm just gonna watch this for a while before I order more tests, before I call on the rheumatologist. So I think what you do is you keep the question on the front of your mind when you see the patient. You say, okay, are they developing a clinically relevant lupus-like syndrome? or not, and if you want help answering that question, call your rheumatologist. If you feel uncomfortable, call your rheumatologist. If you think, oh, I've seen this enough times, the patient's uh, doing fine, they're not having any new symptoms, I don't think there's any more testing that needs to be done, that's a perfectly reasonable course of action. Okay, have a great afternoon.